0: Hello and welcome to Out to Lunch, the place where the art of conversation and eating well are celebrated in equal measure. Today's guest has a brilliant travel and food show on Netflix entitled Somebody Feed Phil, season four of which has just dropped. I turned up in the London episode of season three, feeding him fish and chips, and so it made perfect sense to have a return match. I was delighted to continue my conversation with the wise and witty man who made his name as the creator, writer and exec producer of the hit US TV show, Everybody Loves Raymond, among so much else it's phil rosenthal
1: even when we had our fish and chips we don't finish on camera why because we both have a lot more eating to do that day and so that's you know if anybody wants to know the trade secret you never finish Uh,
2: hello
0: phil rosenthal Hello. <laughs> How are you? Good. It's nice to see it, you. It's very nice to see you. Our various guests, we asked them what their dietary requirements are, and yours was very simple. You just said, I feel like chicken. That's right. There is, as you know, a fried chicken craze going on across the whole of Southern California at the moment. Absolutely. Yeah, you're not getting that. Um, so I, <laughs> <laughs> so I, put, I put out sort of requests to people I know in LA. Oh, look, <laughs> there's Monica. Oh, yeah,
1: there's I Jay Rayner. We're
0: doing a podcast. Like you oh, i gotta you feed my dog you feed your, your dog still. so i reached out to a guy called robin ashbrook and yes. robin was the showrunner on final table the other netflix food right. show that i did and he too agreed that i should go for this place so you're getting a whole chicken from kismet rotisserie very nice do you nice. know it i do, you do. Know it? i do right it's very so- good so you got whole chicken with chili oil and garlic sauce. Uh, a couple. I'm, I'm filling. I'm filling your fridge. To be honest. Thank you. Um, t- two. Uh, the dog's food is going in the bowl behind you. I'm just doing the sound effects so the people mic- know what this. is. The microphone
1: is. is very good.
0: Two portions of schmaltzy potatoes because ah. potatoes cooked in schmaltz is great. Yeah. Cauliflower with turmeric, arugula, and barberries, and hummus with chickpeas. Which, I mean, as hummus is chickpeas, that yes. strikes me as the denim on denim of food. <laughs> And then um, halvin pudding cups and a couple wow. of chocolate chip cookies. I just <gasps> thought we should That's feed, so nice. feed the whole household. And um, what are you the, eating? Uh, are you going to oh, join oh, me? On my side, I do have fried chicken because there is a place here called Bird, which does very good fried chicken. The kicker is I was worried about how I would get this food to you. Yes. Another showrunner from Netflix, his yeah. son is driving towards you at this very moment. Wow. Because uh, Robin said, well, I have a teenager with keys and there's nothing on the road for them to do. So, so I just thought it's, it's a gift from one food show on Netflix to another. One of the things I was fascinated by, I know that you worked on the script for Bill Clinton's White House Correspondents Dinner. You also said at one point that you were writing other gags for Clinton. Is that right?
1: That's right. I had a friend in high school who went on to be a speechwriter for Clinton, and he was kind of his primary comedy person. And so every April, it's kind of humor season in Washington, not like today when it's all year round. But they would have speeches, the gridiron dinner, the radio and television correspondence dinner, and then the big one, the White House correspondence dinner. And he needed material— to be funny, to tell jokes. Certain presidents are better than others. Clinton was amazing at it. Obama was amazing at it. It's funny. The Democrats seem to be better funnier the, than the Democrats The Democrats do seem to be yes. funny. Did you ever write any yeah. gags for Obama as well? Yeah, uh, uh, his first joke, his first line at the gridiron dinner, his first dinner, was was my joke. And I have never been prouder of anything in my life. It was so much fun. And he got a huge laugh because, again, it's not that the joke is so great, but his delivery was amazing. And Obama, we did a Saturday Night Live type video that was kind of hard to get approval of for Clinton. Because a sitting president had never done one of these things before. Now we almost take it for granted because Obama did, you know, sitting between two ferns and and he did all kinds. He went on The Tonight Show and did shtick. He did. He was he was awesome. But Clinton, this was the first time that this happened. And I co-wrote it with the White House people. And then they wanted me because of Everybody Loves Raymond. They wanted me to come and direct the video. So I was directing the president of the United States. (laughs) It was incredible. Uh, That's when president
0: meant something. So would you have to coach him through the lines? You know, if if this is going to work, you're going to have to do
1: this, pause, Yes, But many times, many times he was so adept that he did it in one take and didn't need any help. But there was one time we were filming in the Oval Office, and when we were filming, you know, this was kind of fun that Hollywood was in the White House, so this whole staff was kind of – gathered around the walls they were on the walls of the, of the Oval Office observing and the president had to exclaim with his hands up in the air Yahtzee yeah. you know the game yeah. Yahtzee yeah. the dice the, game like, yeah. that, like a term like a term of uh, of exclamation I did it Yahtzee right and uh, President Clinton said Yahtzee like that and nobody says anything and if I was smart, I wouldn't have said anything. But I'm not so smart, so I said that was great, sir. And I think we're friends now because we've been working together for all of, you know, forty minutes over the course of the week, right? Uh, you grab them when you could grab them. So I said, "I'm." Uh, it's Yahtzee, sir. Yahtzee, and he says, "That's what I said." Okay. And I should have shut up, but I didn't. I said because I cared about him being right. You can't have the president not saying a word right, not like today. You had meant something for him. You want him to be right. So I said, yat C, Yat with a T, C. And the entire White House staff looks at their shoes. And he goes, I thought I was doing that. And he goes, Okay, let's, I said, let's try it once more. And he goes, Yazi, And I say, perfect.
0: <laughs> I, uh, what we had there, surely, was
1: a clash between
0: New York and the Deep South and the, uh, the absolute differences.
1: It's a somewhat Yiddish word, yeah, yeah, I guess, Yazzie. Yeah. <laughs> Not in his <laughs> vernacular. It was uh, pretty funny. I, I spent literally an hour and a half total with the man. Three years later... Across a crowded room. Phil, the man who made me famous. Right? That's a politician. Oh, that could be it. Go answer the door. Here we go. So you don't mind me eating and doing... No, no,
0: it's called Out to Lunch. And the idea is that we interview each other... Well, I interview you over lunch.
1: Yes, well, let's see yours. Right,
0: so um, I have some rather beautifully crusted fried chicken... Uh, it, is, it is good. I have to say, in lockdown, this has been one of my go-to takeaways. You know, but I'm going to ask you a question about Somebody Feed Phil. In Series 3, in the, in the uh, Montreal episode, yes. towards the end, you go off to Au Pierre de Cochon's uh, Sugar Shack. That's right. And Martin Picard, the chef there, he does feed you. Now, we, we, we are in allied trades, is what we call them, if you're right. in trade unions. We are in allied trades, you and I. And you are delivered plate after plate of food, and there yes. is a look of terror in your eyes. Yeah. So the idea, for anybody who hasn't seen somebody feed is you go to a sit-in, you eat your way around it, and you eat a lot, and I know you give some of it to the crew, but I, I, I felt for you because I've been there when the kitchen decides to throw every single dish at you. Was it terrifying? It's, a, <laughs> it's an attack.
1: You are overwhelmed. We are at Dunkirk and we need help. We can't imagine finishing one plate. I've never seen that much food and not just food. It was so obscenely rich and I'm talking about lobes of foie gras <laughs> as as not even the main part of the dish. And then when you're beyond capacity, here comes an entire pig's head.
0: Were you concerned at any point during this that you were going to have to say enough already?
1: I never say that. I just go with what is given me. Mm. I don't like to eat that way. I mean, apparently a lot of people do even when we had our fish and chips we don't finish on camera why because we both have a lot more eating to do that day and so that's you know if anybody wants to know the trade secret you never finish you never, <laughs> you never, finish. never do
0: you never do i mean i'm often asked a question i do i'm a judge on master chef in the uk yes. and everybody says how do you eat when you're in the critics chamber how do you eat right. 16 dishes and you go there is a, a shot at the end of each plate with a knife and fork going down on an empty plate. We stunt that plate because <laughs> there is a grammar to television. And that's what you're expecting to see. Um, while, you, while you tuck into this, you've got a chicken leg, and that's brilliant. And I'm going to start on some of mine here. So I've obviously... Be- nature's, nature's handle. I'm, it's perfectly set. I've obviously been doing my research. And you once said of your mother's cooking, your dear late mother, Helen, who I know died only in October that she must have had a setting on the oven marked shoe when it came to steak. Was food really not a, 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 of any importance to Helen and, and your father, Max, who's still with us? She
1: worked, Max worked, full time, and we did not have a lot of money. Great food was not a priority. And uh, it, was, it was very hard for her, and steak really was a punishment. It was grey and tough, And I couldn't leave the table until I finished it. Uh, Some people
0: listening will think this takes a dark turn, but I have to get into this, one due to another. Your mum was in the camps. Um, She was in a concentration camp in France. That's right. Your dad got out by the skin of his teeth just after Kristallnacht in the mid-late 30s. I just wonder to what degree the, the shadow of the Holocaust was across your house. I know it was a very big issue in certain Jewish households in New York in those years after the war. You were born in 1960... At a point when, courtesy of the Eichmann trial, the Holocaust was going to become a very big thing. That was one of the defining... um, I have to tell you, I did a load of reporting as a journalist on Holocaust historiography. So, um, And I was just
1: curious as to whether it cast a long shadow of
0: your childhood.
1: There are support groups for children of Holocaust survivors because it's such a thing, Mm -hmm. right? I didn't know. But it manifested itself like this. At a very early age, I was being told what I had versus what they had. They told you this? Growing Mm -hmm. up. When I asked for a bicycle, like the other kids, for my 10th birthday, my mother literally said, do you know what I had when I was 10 years old? So a kid doesn't want to hear that story. The kid just wants the bike. Was was there a narrative? (laughs) I mean, your grandparents, uh, did they make it out? Some did, some didn't. My maternal grandfather was an actual, very interesting historical figure. He, he survived the camp. They were split up. My mother and her mother were put in a camp in, the, in France called Gurs. He was sent, because he was somewhat political, he was sent to Auschwitz. And he survived the death march to Buchenwald. Bloody hell. And he made him— he, he made himself valuable to the Nazis by inventing things that they could use, things like bug spray and lice powder. So they kept him around, and he actually survived. But instead of rejoining with my mother and grandmother after the war, they wrote to each other, hey, we're out, let's go. We have relatives in New York, let's go. He said, no, I have work to do in Germany. He stayed. He stayed, and his work was... Philip Auerbach, who I'm named after, created the restitution program, which sends Jews around the world a check from Germany every month for if their business was stolen. That's him. Wow. That's, I mean, that's an amazing lineage. He was arrested. They never liked that he started the restitution program. They arrested him for moving funds around. This was never proven. And they say he killed himself in his jail cell. They say. This was in the 50s, they say. Nobody knows.
0: Part of the touchstone of Somebody Feed Phil, on, now three, in, into three series on Netflix, is your enthusiasm. You are the anti Anthony Bourdain. Tony, uh, God love him, and I, I, I knew him and I liked him, and you know, they, I, I filmed with him a number of times. But he, he was quite a serious guy. He didn't really crack, yeah. crack a smile easily. You even have the phrase smiley man in your theme tune, the one that I think won an Emmy, is that right? It was nominated. was nominated for an Emmy, and the the phrase is a smiley... A happy, (laughs) happy, hungry man. A happy, hungry man. Is any element of that a kind of response to what your parents went through, this feeling of they went through that, it is now my responsibility to have a really
1: good time? I really do feel like the luckiest guy in the world to be eating whatever delicious thing I'm eating but that is a genuine response to not having eaten delicious things before. You know, the first time I had garlic, which is really one of my all time favorite flavors. It's a good thing. It, I mean, it's a, the garlic is a good, you can make a case. I had garlic when I went to college. Seriously, I was a freshman in college. We were at a perfectly crappy Italian restaurant in Hempstead, New York on Long Island. And all we could afford was pasta and sauce. And the pasta and sauce comes. And I'm like, this is the most delicious thing. Why is this so delicious? And they said, what, it's just pasta and sauce? I said, yeah, but there's this chopped up little white bits. What is that? What, garlic? Yes, it's garlic. I never had that flavor in 17 years of life. So for me, a moment like that is like in The Wizard of Oz when she opens the door. And now suddenly the movie's in color.
2: You may have heard of the podcast Juicy Scoop. Wondered what it is? Why aren't you listening? Well, I'm its host, created it, been doing it for seven years. I'm Heather McDonald of Juicy Scoop with Heather McDonald. Now, I could tell you why you should be listening to my show, but my listeners wanted to write the ad for me, and here are some of the things they said. Not your regular juicy podcast. Catch up on all the juicy topics from Hollywood and pop culture to true crime and beyond. Heather McDonald's Juicy Scoop always has great guests, great laughs, and great gossip. It's a comedian's take on the hottest headlines. Juicy Scoop is the pop culture news you want to hear. No BS, no filter, no filler. Raw, real, and in the moment. Throw in the hilarity of amazing comedians that you'll instantly be obsessed with. A juicy crime story and a dash of normal life in LA moments. And you've got yourself an amazing week of Juicy Scoop. Two episodes every week, every Tuesday and Thursday. It will never let you down.
0: Also, from Something Else The Fault Line, with legendary journalist and broadcaster David Dimbleby.
1: This is the story of the crisis that unfolded over the 18 months following the terrorist attacks on the 11th of September 2001. Hey,
2: A crisis that led to war in Iraq. This will not be a campaign of half measures. And we will accept no outcome but victory.
1: From something else, this is The Fault Line. Bush, Blair and Iraq. Available wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Subscribe now. By the way, I have to ask you, how is your chicken? It's great. Great. Let me, let me tell you back. You go to college, you do some student drama. You said a brilliant thing once. Only once. Only once. once. And, and that was why I remember it. All the other things are <laughs> completely forgettable. But this one thing. You pretty much said that as a, an actor or performer, you spend yeah. your whole life trying to recreate, recapture the joy of seeing your name up on a notice board at school saying you've been cast in the school play.
1: Well, you've just been accepted in any way, right? This is so much better than getting beat up in the schoolyard. It's now I'm in something. Now I'm, got, now I'm part of a group. Now I've been accepted somewhere.
0: Yeah. What was your plan? What was in your head? Were you saying, I want to be him?
1: I, Who did you want to be? I just wanted to be funny on stage. I think the first one was uh, either Art Carney or Jackie Gleason. When you're a kid, you don't know there's writing and directing and producing. You just see them on TV. You want to be that. You want to be that funny you hear guy? You people laugh. You hear people laughing, you see the acceptance, you get, You love how funny they are, and you wish you were funny like that. And then my dad was funny. So that the currency was the same, you know, around the dinner table. When we weren't yelling, we were laughing. Did you ever actually do stand-up? Yes, I tried it once when I was 19 years old at a local club in suburbia where they did amateur night. So there's a few tables up front, maybe they're paying attention, but all you can hear is a din from the bar and I hated this stand-up thing. Do you remember what any of your material was? It was uh, Star (laughs) Wars-based in 1979. It was a little dirty because I thought that was what you do. I felt ashamed saying it. (laughs) All the wrong ingredients for being a stand-up. But I remember thinking, yeah, I don't care about those laughs because I'm soaked in sweat. It was so nerve-wracking, I never want to do this again. And so I just thought, I'm just going to pursue character acting, comedy acting, and I'll be like Walter Matthau, my favorite actor. But
0: but in (laughs) fact, what happens is a friend of yours who came around and said, let's write a script together, you're funny. And you write a screenplay. I assume it was never made, but you got the money. So here we are, two kids,
1: maybe 27 years old. We sell the screenplay to HBO for seventy thousand dollars in 1987. Jesus, that would have been serious this, money. That's we are now thousandaires. <laughs> when I told my Holocaust survivor mother, "Do you know the phone went dead?" I said, "Ma, are you there, Ma?" She goes, "Do you know we've worked our whole lives to have that money in the bank?" Yeah. And she was, like, disdainful.
0: Well, she's... I mean, there's a bit of me as a writer who sometimes got paid pretty well for certain things Mm -hmm. who Mm -hmm. wants to whisper quietly into this microphone, she's not entirely wrong. As in... Of course. Those of the generation before who worked their asses off. There is a story, another story of one of your scripts. You worked at the Metropolitan Museum of Modern Art? Yes. Um,
1: Metropolitan Museum of Art. It's one one of the top tourist attractions in the United States. It's our premier art museum. And I got to be a guard. What happened when you did the night shift? Well, I uh, was fired because I fell asleep on a 300-year-old bed. They found me asleep at 5 a.m., because I didn't return to my post. And I was out of my mind because I was on my third night without sleep because I was in a play at the same time. By the way, the guards at the Metropolitan Museum of Art or any art museum, first of all, I learned a couple things, completely superfluous. They're only there to make the patrons feel like somebody's watching. When really there's cameras and alarms and everything else. And two, whenever there's a robbery or something goes bad at the museum, it's a guard. The guard did it. I was in because they have an inside. Th- yeah, when I was in, what they uh, a, a guard stole actually cracked, cracked the glass in the Egyptian wing and took. I'm not making this up. Nefertiti's jewels to the pawn shop on 86th Street, two blocks away. The pawn shop guy looks at this and says, "Where did you get this?" He says, "My sister." <laughs> and the pawn shop man makes one phone call to the <laughs> Metropolitan Museum of Art. Yes, there's stuff like
2: this. And he turns the museum and he says,
0: this man's got a 5,000-year-old sister.
1: (laughs) They said, we'll take it. (laughs) So mine was a rather minor infraction. But it led to this humiliation. And years later, I'm in Hollywood with a partner, a writing partner. We're going to team up, which I recommend because it's easier than writing alone when you're first starting out. And... What are we going to write? We need a sample script called a spec script. We write on speculation. What should we write? Well, there's this show Roseanne that's popular now. We should write a spec Roseanne. What should it be about? What's the plot? I said, how about if Dan, the husband, they're kind of, you know, strapped for cash and he has to take a second job at night and he gets a job at the local museum and he falls asleep on a 300 year old bed. So we write this. And we sent, start sending it around. And the agents are like, what an imagination. <laughs> we love this. And we get hired from that. So you never know. That's the lesson, people. You never know where, what happens in your life and what it can be used for. Well, I mean, that became
0: literally so. The story mm-hmm. of your big hit, Everybody Loves Raymond, sitcom that ran from, was it 96 to 2005? Yes. 70 Emmy Awards. Nomination. Yeah. Why don't we just go with awards? No, 16, you're right. It was nominated for 70 a- awards and, and won 50 on 16. It's amazing. Um, and the setup, for anybody who hasn't seen, everybody who loves Raymond, is he's a, a sports writer who's trying to basically, for nine series, is dealing with the relationship between the wife he loves ex- very, very much and his parents who live across the road and won't cut, stop coming over. Um, and his brother. I mean, is,
1: is, that, a, is that an oversimplification? <laughs> no, that's exactly it. And nobody was jumping up and down. Oh, my God, we have to have this sexy premise of a show, right?
0: So your star, Ray Romano, does six minutes on Letterman.
1: Letterman had a development deal at CBS, and they had tried with other comedians and other actors to do, get a show going, a sitcom. And they liked him. He had been trying to get on Letterman for 12 years. He, he had been on Johnny Carson once. Nothing really happened. And then years later, he gets this one six-minute shot. And what had happened to him personally in between Carson and Letterman was he had children. Uh He had material. You use what happens to you. And I tell writers who are just starting out, keep a journal. Because it's easier to write things down than to write. And you never know where a story's going to—a good story that you think is just humiliating or boring or— you look at it months later, it could be something. So it was with Ray's life, and so it was in me creating the show for Ray, drawing from my own parents and my own, you know, it, married with children situation. It, it calls
0: back on a, on a very strong tradition of the family sitcom, where you are, you are eavesdropping on a family. Lucille Ball, in a way, was one of those.
1: Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz yep. specifically, invented this format. Yep the three camera taped in front of a live audience. And and with each
0: each generation, it's had a a different iteration and and what it covers.
1: The family sitcom is one of the building blocks of television. And it's always, you know, not what's desired. They want the high concept. Oh, they come from Mars and now they live in the... But this was as low concept as it comes. Exactly right. So that's what I also tell people. Low concept, it's going to be harder to sell, but it's going to be way easier
0: to run. Um, I, I watched in preparation, I watched both the very first episode, the pilot, and then yes. I went to the latest I could find, I think it was episode uh-huh. 14, series 9. And um, in both cases, I and mean, this is, I think, the thing mm-hmm. that defined which moved on the domestic family sitcom. It was one of the, the main streams in the story was whether Ray was going to get laid. And that, I mean, is that wrong to say that that was one of the defining elements of Everybody Loves Raymond? Ray's favorite subject, personally. How was it dealing with that level of success? You know, in the way of the best things, it was a slightly slow burn because the first slot was a bit of a, you know, a bit of a poison chalice on a Friday night. Once they moved it to Mondays, it just doubled and went up and up and up. And then you're into syndication land. Did you deal with success well? Were you able to deal with it in the moment?
1: I'm a monster. (laughs) Fantastic. I can't say it came late in life, but I did toil in horrible jobs for many years before that. And then when when it starts to click and it starts to hit... You're, you're just so grateful. I call it winning the jackpot over and over again because all the planets have to line up just to get on the air. And then for it to be accepted so that you might run one more season, right? All these things have to happen for me to have this life. And I'm, I've never been anything but so grateful and so happy. And it was such a joyous time.
0: If you're one of those people who spends hours in the kitchen knocking up culinary masterpieces, you'll want to be properly dressed for it. I know I do. Or perhaps you just want to convince your friends you're that sort of person without going to all the trouble of actually cooking. Well, now you can. How, you ask? By wearing the terrific, official, logotastic, out-to-lunch apron, of course, in gorgeous, durable denim. It's so good, you'll want to go out in it. And if you do go out, let's face it, it's tough out there, so take your favourite podcast with you in the sturdy out-to-lunch travel cup, the perfect receptacle for your hot beverage of choice. See, not only will our lunch lubricated chats warm your ears, we'll also warm the rest of you. And when you get home and you've washed your out-to-lunch travel cup, try it. With the out to lunch tea towel, so soft you'll be snuggling up with it at bedtime. To see the range of merch and catch them all, head to out to That's out to lunch, all one word, dot backstreetmerch, all one word, dot com Want to spend even more time with me? The paperback of my latest book, My Last Supper, is out now. Join me as I explore the landscape of our last meals on earth, available from all good bookshops and a few bad ones too. But for now, let's go back out to lunch. Do you want to start on your dessert? Yeah. Do you want to try your halva pudding? Sure. I'm kind of interested. I, I have to say, uh, there you go. I don't have any pudding. I'm on coleslaw. All
1: right. I'm, I'm digging in. So this is, you're saying this is a halva-based
0: pudding? Well, I think
1: so. With strawberries and nuts and I see pistachios. Mmm. Oh, yeah. Is that right? Monica. Oh,
2: yes? Come here. I had to come in because I'm starving. This, it looks like
1: it's that from, worked it's out. from Kismet. Here's my daughter, Lily, Wait a minute.
0: I'm getting another I'm just stealing. Do I'll it.
1: You. You, you can have all so this. So the whole family's turning out, here. which is oh great. I have a salad. I have hummus. This oh my is my okay. friend, Jay Rayner.
0: Is that dessert? Did yes. yes.
1: Um, <laughs> By the way, this is the only reason they stay with is it? me. He,
2: He's not wrong. <laughs>
1: the food. This is it. They could take
0: <laughs> it. Oh, honey, that's not true. I think I oh should God, point out now. for anybody listening that your yes. dearly beloved you Monica, guess, Monica Horan is also an <laughs> actress, was also in Everybody yes. Loves Raymond.
1: So. She was Amy in the show, the brother's wife, and it is actually an interesting story how she got the part. She slept with the Did producer. She? Slut. Now then. Um,
0: <laughs> <laughs> just called your wife a slut. I'm a terrible man.
1: He just <laughs> called me <laughs> <you> a slut. <laughs> I
2: follow that. I
0: when I go like this or when I go like this?
1: <laughs> Both sides. <laughs> That's the famous uh, Jackie Mason line. You call a, you call a, a, a lady a prostitute, She slapping you in the face. You call a Jewish lady a prostitute. Oh, really? When I go like this or like
0: this? <laughs> Did you at any point worry that the comfort of success would blunt the writer Phil Rosenthal?
1: If you read my little book called You're Lucky You're Funny, it's the story of how Raymond happened. And I thought I would pay it forward by showing you how to take the terrible things that happened in your life and make them useful. I never, ever did anything just for the money. And I suffered because of it. But then I was rewarded, I think, because that wasn't the focus. And it's still not the focus. It took me 10 years to get the travel show the Money. original one on PBS,
0: which led to this one. Yeah. So that was called I'll Phil's have What having. Phil's having. And then you got right. it onto Netflix. And it has become a thing. And you go around in each city. The research is brilliant. I also love the fact um, I'm, I'm biased because I'm in one episode three, London, series three. The fourth wall is down. Yeah. So the crew appears, including your brother Richard,
1: who's your producer. Right. Um, Right. He's the worst part. Yeah, I know, but he's there. But it's nice that (laughs) that you look after him. Mom wanted her dying words were, just take care. Well, that was the thing I was going
0: to say. Before she passed, did you have time to reflect with your old mom, with Helen, about where her children had got to?
1: Yeah. I'll tell you what they got great pleasure out of, that my brother and I were working together and having such a good time and having such success with it. That was a joyous thing for both parents. And I, I wish that for everybody, to have their kids not just succeed, but to succeed together and love each other and, and you Yeah, know, I mean, you know, it's so a very, very together. nice set to be on. That's perfect. Um, That's perfect.
0: Phil, thank you for taking the time. It, it's not straightforward, sorting out one of these across the Atlantic, but I think this has gone rather swimmingly.
1: Uh, you know I'm crazy about you, so I would love to do this even without <laughs> the recording equipment. I would eat with you anytime on the All Zoom. right,
0: well, let's make a date. Um, yeah, but, why not? But for the moment, let me say, Phil Rosenthal, thank you for staying in for lunch with me or going out to lunch with me. It's been an absolute joy. For me as well. That was a lot of fun phil's lunch came from kismet rotisserie on hollywood boulevard in los angeles and mine came from bird in brixton south london and a whole bunch of new episodes of the marvelous somebody feed phil are now streaming on netflix do go and watch it and do also go back and explore previous episodes of Out to lunch share them with your loved ones rate and comment spreading the word helps us to make more give us five stars go on you know you want to out to Lunch is a Something Else in Jay Rayner production. The music was written, arranged and performed by me, Jay Rayner and Robert Rickenberg. The mix engineer was Josh Gibbs. The assistant producer was Jemima Rathbone. The producer is Selena Ream and the executive producer is Darby Doris. Additional production is from Steve Ackerman. Next time, I'll be hanging out with the actor, composer and comedian, Tim Minchin.
1: I've got a Grammy nomination. Thank you very much.
2: <laughs>